Just a note here as we get started. On Sunday, the recorder uh, stopped halfway through and the one who was recording, uh, running the recorder, uh, did not notice until near the end of the Bible study. And so he started it again at that point, but that meant there was a section in the middle of the Bible study that was not recorded. So I'm going to uh, put the initial recording uh, together here with something that I've recorded uh, at a later date. Uh, and uh, together, all of it uh, here in this one track will make up uh, the Bible study that we shared together on Sunday morning. All right, so you can set that aside for just a little bit, and we will come to that here in a little bit. Um, uh, let's see if we've got what we need here. Yeah, okay. So I just want to review a little bit what we've been doing up to this point uh, in our Bible study, and then this will be the topic of consideration today. What is a church? Um, and this will occupy us for the next few weeks. Um, but first of all, let's just review where we have been up to this point. Uh, we have uh, been working through several questions uh, related to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we have looked at uh, God. Uh, we have found that he is the eternal creator of this world. At one point, this world did not exist, but God did. And this world and this creation exists within a sub subsection of the divine life that stretches from eternity to eternity. And God is the one who caused this world to come into being. And therefore, he is worthy of all of our worship and praise. That's the purpose for which he has created this world. We found that God is a ruler. He rules in every element of our lives. He is the sovereign ruler of this world. We found that he is good. He is a God who is good in his disposition, in his ruling of this world. And finally, we found that he is a judge. He is inflexibly righteous. He does not let things slide. And those three taken together, Moses puts his finger on the tension then that exists between God and this world. In Exodus 34, you remember God comes he proclaims his glory to Moses. The Lord is a God who is compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's a God who is good, in other words. And yet he is a God who will by no means pardon the guilty. He will by no means let the guilty off the hook. So how does a God like that interact with a world like ours that is filled with sin? How can he be simultaneously good to sinners who deserve his punishment and his judgment? And there is tension then between God and this world. And yet God's purposes are to reclaim this world, to subdue the hostility, to reconcile man to himself for his own glory. And God has begun to accomplish this in Christ. He is at work in Christ to reconcile man and himself, this entire world and himself. God was in Christ, Paul tells us, reconciling the world to himself. And in Christ, God has provided a great salvation for us. The heart of that salvation is our being reconciled to God. That tension being erased so that God can be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And we come to partake of this salvation, this reconciliation with God. We come to partake of it by being united to Jesus Christ. God is in Christ, 
And when we are united to Christ, God and man are reconciled in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, that we looked at several weeks ago. How do we come then to be united to Christ so that we are reconciled to God, so that the great salvation that God has wrought and worked in Christ through his death, his burial, and resurrection, how is it that we come to participate in that, to partake of it, that it becomes ours? How are we united to Christ? And we saw a couple of weeks ago that we are united to Christ by faith, Matthew 18, verses 5 through 6, and by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of confusion today about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, but Christ himself is clear that spirit baptism is simply Christ's own work to plunge us into the Holy Spirit so that he comes to indwell us and we come to possess him. So we have been united to Christ by the Spirit through our faith. The Spirit is one. There is one Holy Spirit. We who have been united to Christ then have been united into a single body. One body in Christ Jesus. You have been baptized into Christ Jesus in the spirit. Now the result is, as there is one spirit, there is one body of Christ. That's what we looked at uh, last week as our conclusion. And so what that means is there is no such thing as a Christian who is not a member of the body of Christ. If you are a believer... You possess God's Holy Spirit, and in possessing him, you have been united to Christ as your head. You have been united to other believers as fellow members of the body of Christ. This is the significance of God's promise in the, Holy, in the, in the, in the Old Testament, his promise to send the Holy Spirit to us. The sending of the Holy Spirit created the body of Christ. And Christ has won that redemption for us that we might be a member of that body and experience the blessings that God has for us. Now, the scriptures use a particular term to describe the body of Christ, this thing that's been created by the Spirit's work. And the term that is most frequently used to describe this thing is the word church. You see this throughout your New Testament, the church. And the New Testament connects the church and the body of Christ very closely. In fact, it says they're the same thing. Look at Colossians 1. You've turned there, Colossians 1, verse 18. There's a number of passages that say this. But Colossians... Okay, this is where the recording broke off. And so I'll pick up here. We were discussing Colossians 1.18 as connecting uh, the body of Christ with the word church Colossians 1:18 he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent and we see this same idea in Ephesians 1 verses 22 and 23 which connects Christ as the head over all things to the church with the fact that the church is his body we see the same idea in Ephesians 5, verse 23 as well. So we need to, at this point, ask the question, what is the church? What is a church? Uh, Five Christians who bump into each other at Aldi, a church. Perhaps you're shopping one day to you and another believer, and you're just putting the milk into your shopping cart, 
and you turn around and there are two other believers, perhaps a man and his wife that you know, who love Christ and follow him. And while you're chatting with them there right by the milk cooler, uh, a fifth person comes up uh, who is also a believer that you know. Uh, are those five Christians who bump into each other at Aldi, a church? What if they bow their heads and pray together there by the cooler, the refrigerator? What if the Aldi scene gives way to those five Christians singing choruses around a campfire in the backyard? Is that a church? What if they close the evening of singing with someone giving a devotional from God's Word? What if they repeat the exercise every Sunday evening? Is that a church? Uh, What if they include a piano? If they buy hymn books? If they appoint a pastor? If they build a building? At what point do those five Christians in Aldi cross the line from not a church to now a church? What is a church's essential character? And this question is essential for us to answer because when Christians get together and begin to associate with one another, it is vital that we understand where that line is between not a church and now a church. And understanding that is even more important when Christians have come from less than ideal church situations in the past. What we want is a church as the New Testament lays it out. We don't want to create our own version of the church. Jesus is the head of the church, not me. And so it's his pattern. It's his ideas that must prevail in the church, not mine. And that means spending a lot of time looking very carefully at the New Testament and the Old Testament at times to determine what is a church and what is its essential character and what does a church do. And this question, what is a church, will occupy us for the next eight weeks or so. The vision of the church that the New Testament gives us is glorious. She is to be a reflection of her Master and Lord. And when the New Testament vision of the church engages our understanding and affections, we are in a place to enter into a church with joy and great hope. There are many ideas out there about the church. There are pastors out there who have very little idea of what a church actually is. And most frequently, it is our experience that has shaped what we think a church is or what it should be. Now, there's no church that will never fail us. And if we bring our previous experiences of the church into a planting of a church, then we may come with false expectations. Perhaps if our experience of church in the past has been negative, we may enter into another church or a church plant with great reserve. We're not prepared to enter into the church with joy and hope and expectation. And so my commitment to you as I teach over the next few weeks concerning this question of what a church is, my commitment to you is to show you only what the scripture teaches about the church. And if there's something that I say and you can't see that the Bible teaches it, I would love to have you come and ask questions. I would love to have you come and say, I I didn't quite understand how your point about the church arose out of that Bible passage we were looking at. I don't want to teach you my own ideas about the church. I've spent a lot of time studying and reading and comparing passages in the New Testament and 
trying to put it all together and to understand. And in the end, there is a great simplicity to the church that gets crowded out when we want to pick and choose between our ideas and the scripture's teaching regarding a church. Things don't make sense when our understanding of the church is a mixture of our own ideas and our past experiences and someone else's ideas and a few Bible texts thrown in for good measure. It gets complicated and confusing like that. Problems develop and Christ is not honored. God's people are hurt and scattered. But there is great safety in sticking to what the scripture says, even if our study of the church shows that we have been wrong about some things up to this point. At the end of the day, we are creatures who tend to trust our own judgment. There's no one we are more ready to believe than ourselves. And it's to ourselves that we give our undivided attention every day. We listen to ourselves and we consider ourselves the most trustworthy and reliable sources of information in the universe. I've been in a lot of churches personally. I've observed many things. I've heard many stories. I've seen successes and disasters and failures. I've thought deeply about many individual church situations, and I've come to my own conclusions about what is happening in those churches. But in the end, my own experience must not be the foundation that we stand upon together. We need to stand upon the Word of God and the Word of God alone. And I can say that as I have studied the scriptures regarding the church and simultaneously watched so many other churches, I can say that I have found that the scriptures are a safe place to stand. The biblical model of the church is glorious, and no church is perfect because every church is composed of fallen human beings, but where Christ's word is faithfully followed, the church that comes to exist as a result is supposed to be a slice of heaven upon earth. It's the one place in the universe where the head, in whom God will sum up all things to bring in that great future age of glory. It's the place where that head, Jesus Christ, reigns now as head in this age. He is the head of the body, the church. You want to be a part of a church like that, where Christ is head. I want to as well. And that is available to us as we submit ourselves to the Scripture's teaching regarding the church. So I commit myself to teaching you only what the Scripture says and to teach it as faithfully as I am able. And I want to call you to commit yourself to submit to Christ and His Word as you see what He has to say week by week in the pages of the New Testament. I want to call you to commit yourself to praying for me week by week in this venture. And I want to call you to pray for one another in this venture. Pray for one another's submission to the Word of Christ so that together we may grow up into Christ, who is our head. So what is a church? Where is the line between not a church and now a church? Well, as we look into the New Testament, we find the word, trans- we find the word church frequently in our English Bibles. And as we look at that word, it's very apparent uh, as we study the New Testament that the underlying Greek word, is ecclesia. And it's not important that you remember that Greek word at all. I'm I'm just simply including that word here so that you know that the word church that we use 
has a counterpart in the Greek language in which the scriptures were originally written. And that word ekklesia for a Greek speaker did not mean exactly everything that we mean by the word church. Uh, it is a word that Greek speakers would use to refer to things other than a religious body or a group of Christians who gathered together. As we look at the New Testament, we see that the word ecclesia appears 109 times in the New Testament with reference to what we think of as the church. And as we study this word in Greek literature and in the New Testament, we find out that any time a Greek speaker used the word ecclesia, he intended to speak of a gathering or an assembly of those people who had come together for a common purpose. In other words, an ecclesia is not just a crowd of people. Greek speakers had several other words they could use if they wanted to refer to just a crowd of people that you might find at a shopping center or perhaps at a, um, a show, a, a shire show. Uh, it's not just a chance meeting of people together in the grocery store. An ecclesia involves physical proximity and togetherness. An ecclesia is a gathering or an assembly of people who have come together for a common purpose. And I'm going to give you a document now that lists every passage in the New Testament that uses this Greek word, ecclesia. And we're going to work through it together uh, just briefly. The majority of the data here in this, uh, in this document, uh, I don't intend to work through now. Uh, a lot of it is for you to just work through at your own pace and uh, whenever you have time. But what we find as we look through the New Testament and we study this word, ecclesia, or church, we find that the New Testament uses it in three different ways to mean three different things. The first is that we find the word used in secular Greek usage. Uh, and what we mean by that is when the writers of the New Testament used the word ecclesia, they didn't have in mind at all anything like what we think of as a church. For example, in Acts chapter 19, uh, we find that those who were rioting in Ephesus as a result of Paul's preaching, they came together with the intent of putting Paul to death because of what he had preached. And they are called an ecclesia, a gathering of people who have come together for the purpose of putting Paul to death. And, of course, you remember that the mayor uh, of the city of Ephesus addresses them. And he says, you ought to stop this riot. If anyone has a complaint against anyone, there is an ecclesia of judges. There is a gathering together, a panel, a court of judges who sit and they have gathered together for the purpose of adjudicating justice and uh, handing down a proper sentence. And the mayor says, if anyone has a complaint, let them settle their complaint in the ecclesia of judges. Uh, Israel in the wilderness, gathered around Mount Sinai to receive God's law, is called an ecclesia in the New Testament. And so there is this secular usage of the Greek term that doesn't have anything to do with a church. But when we find the word ecclesia used in the New Testament with reference to the church, it actually speaks of two different gatherings of believers. The first, as you can see there on the handout, is that the word ecclesia is used to refer to the universal church. Uh, several passages in the New Testament, uh, about 11%, 12 occurrences to be exact, 
refer to what theologians have called for the last thousand years or so, refer to what they have called the universal church. And you can see this as you look through that listing uh, of passages. Uh, You can look, for example, at the passage in Hebrews there at the end of the list. It speaks of the assembly of those who are enrolled in heaven. Uh, You can look at this word in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, that Christ is the head of the body, the church. Who are the people who gather together in this, this, this church, this ecclesia? Well, you can see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, that Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the church. And we have, we have noted in past weeks that in pouring out the Spirit upon us, Christ unites us to his body so that he is the head of the body, and we are the members of the body. And thus, anyone who is a member of the body of Christ possesses the Spirit of God. He is a believer. He possesses God's Holy Spirit indwelling within him. And so Christ is the head of a body that is composed of all those who possess the Spirit, all saints in all generations. So what is this ecclesia? that Paul speaks of in Colossians 1.18. It is a gathering together in one body of all believers who have been united to Christ by the Spirit. When does this ecclesia gather? Well, if you think about what Paul is saying when he says that this body is composed of all the saints in all generations who have been united to Christ by the Spirit, then it is clear that this ecclesia has not yet actually gathered. It is looking forward to a future gathering when we all, all of the saints, gather together around the throne of God. We read of this in Revelation 5, Revelation 21. All the saints that are called the church, in a passage like Colossians 1.18, this universal church is actually not yet a church, an ecclesia, a gathering. And the reason for this is that it has never yet gathered. If a church, an ecclesia, is a gathering, then the universal church has never yet gathered, but it will one day. And how many of these gatherings are there? Well, there is one gathering of all believers, and that gathering occurs in God's presence on that future day around his throne in one location. There is one gathering and one location. And so we could define the universal church as that currently invisible but ever-growing body of all those united to Jesus Christ as the head through the Spirit. In other words, all Christians. All Christians make up the body of Christ, and one day that body will gather in its fullness, all of us, around the throne of God, and that will be the universal ecclesia, the universal assembly of all of the saints. And those references to the gathering of all saints together in the body of Christ uh, occur about uh, 12 times in the New Testament, about 11% of the usages of the word ecclesia in the New Testament. 89% of the time that we see the word ecclesia occur in the New Testament, it's referring to something different. It's referring to what theologians have called the local church. 
And in con- this is in contrast uh, to the universal church. Uh, the universal church has not yet gathered, and yet throughout church history since Christ returned to heaven, there have been many gatherings of saints that the New Testament calls churches. And as we look at these occurrences of the word church to describe the local church in the New Testament, we can categorize them in three main categories, and you see this on your handout. First of all, we find that the word ecclesia is used to designate churches in specific locations where the location is named in the clause in which the word church appears. So, for example, in Acts 8.1, it refers to the church in Jerusalem. Where did that ecclesia, where did that church gather? Where did those people gather together? It was in Jerusalem. We find in the New Testament that there are that there is an ecclesia, a gathering in Antioch. We find there is an ecclesia, a gathering in Sincre, in Rome, in Pamphylia. We find that there is a gathering of the saints in quite a few of the major cities of the ancient world. In fact, if you look at the back page of your handout, the page of conclusions, there is a note there that uh, we know of at least 48 uh, local gatherings of saints uh, by the end of the first century. The New Testament tells us about 40, 48 of them, and they are listed there for you. Who makes up these local assemblies, these local ecclesia, these local gatherings? Well, if you look at page 3 of your handout, uh, the second column you can find 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty three, and there it speaks of the churches of the saints. Who are the people who make up these gatherings, these local churches? Well, it is the saints. And how many of these gatherings are there? Well, as you look through the document that I've given you, you find that there are many specific geographical locations where these ecclesia converge, where they come together, where the saints come together into a church. In other words, there are many gatherings in many locations. And this is, again, in contrast to the universal church, which gathers once and in one location. And the question we've got to ask ourselves at this point is this. There is the universal church. And now we see that there are local churches. Why? Why are there local churches? Why did Christ's apostles plant local churches? In fact, the New Testament is not a book that's primarily about the universal church. It is a book about local churches. The vast majority of the books are written to local churches. Why do local churches exist? Why do Christians join local churches? Is being a member of the universal church, in other words, a Christian, is is that not enough? Apparently not. A local churchless world is not God's plan. A local churchless Christian is not God's plan. But why does God's plan include local churches as the 89% predominant emphasis? Well, if we want to know why God's plan predominantly emphasizes the local church, then we must ask what the local church's essential character is. Where is the not a church Now a church line. 
Is the gathering together for the Bible study on Sunday mornings that we experience, is that a church? What about those five Christians at Aldi? Defining the essential character of a church gives us clues as to why God creates and emphasizes the local church and why he intends that we gather together and join ourselves to a local church. So what is a local church's essential character? That is what we will be developing in the next few weeks. And the first thing that we need to see in the New Testament is something that probably is fairly intuitive to us, but it needs to be stated. What is a local church? The first thing that we find out about a local church is that local churches gather regularly. The key word there is regularly. The local church is a gathering of saints that gather together regularly. And this is in contrast to the universal church. The universal church gathers once on that great day. We gather forever in heaven on that great final day. We gather around the throne. Uh, But in contrast to that, local churches, as we look at the New Testament, they gather together, the saints gather together regularly. verse 7. I will just uh, put this up here, page 560, if you need that in the Bible. I'm going to go back now so that you don't read all that. But this is in contrast to the local church, to, to the universal church. Does the universal church gather regularly? No, it hasn't actually gathered yet. But local churches gather regularly, and we see this pattern throughout the New Testament. They gather on the first day of the week, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. I should probably turn there. Uh, Every time that we get any time reference in the New Testament to when local churches gathered, Acts chapter 20, verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. See, it says, when we were gathered together to break bread, as though they just did this. They just gathered together to break bread. And Paul happened to be there that week, and so he addressed the congregation in the midst of their gathering together to break bread. And when did they do this? On the first day of the week. Why? Why did they gather on the first day of the week? The majority of early Christians were Jews. God's holy day in the Old Testament was the Sabbath or Saturday. It was not the first day of the week. Why the change? That change indicates some intentionality. They intended to meet on the first day of the week because they had a reason. Why? Well, as you look at Matthew 28, 1, As you look at Mark 16, 2, as you look at Luke 24, verse 1, it becomes abundantly apparent why they met on the first day of the week. Because that was the day of the resurrection. The resurrection is Jesus Christ coming to life. He ascends to the Father. He pours out the Spirit, and this thing's made. This thing's created. The local church, the universal church, is created by the sending of the Spirit. And that all began when Christ rose from the dead. And so the resurrection of the dead, what did it do? It created local church and universal churches. And so we meet on that day when they were created. We gather on the day when the Spirit comes who gathers the body together. So local churches meet on the first day of the week, and yet that's not all. They also meet throughout the week, and you see this in Acts chapter 2. Day by day, you realize that in Acts, every night when you got off work, You spent time with other believers. You gathered together with them. Every day, Acts 2.46. Day by day, 
they were in each other's homes. They attended the temple together day by day. They broke bread in each other's homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. So the local church gathers on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week, but also throughout the week in individuals' homes. This is not a gathering of the entire church, apparently. We know that there were 5,000 believers in the Jerusalem church. If you had all 5,000 over over, of them over to your home every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, you've got to have a really big house. So apparently these are smaller groups of believers from that one gathering uh, of 5,000 men who are meeting together. Did, did the Jerusalem church all meet together? Where did all 5,000 of them get together? Well, we know that they met together because in Acts chapter, let me see if I can find it. I think it's Acts chapter 6. Sorry, this just came, came to me off the top of my head. Um, I did not have this in my notes. Yes, Acts chapter 6, verse 2. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. So there weren't a bunch of little fragmented congregations throughout Jerusalem. The apostles are leading this church, and there's a full number of them that gather together. So according to Acts 5, that's 5,000 men plus women and children. Uh, Where did they meet? Temple. They're meeting in the temple precinct. And if you've seen the temple, you know that meetings of 5,000 are very popular. If you've seen the ruins of the temple. Um, what are they doing when they get together? Their purpose is to worship Christ corporately. And that is very much like the universal church. Why does the universal church gather around the Father's throne? Well, go read Revelation 5. It's to worship the, the Lamb and the Father. It's to give glory to them. Why do local churches gather in this age? It is to give worship to Christ, as we will worship him on the future day. And there's several elements that we find in Acts and throughout the New Testament that take place in the the gathering. First of all, there's preaching. They devoted themselves, Acts 2.42, to the apostles' doctrine. Paul comes to town. What's the local church in Troas want to do in Acts 20? They want to sit and play board games with Paul? No, he comes. Paul, can you give us a sermon? They're devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine. The second thing we see is they devote themselves to fellowship. And that fellowship in Acts 2.42, there's two components of it that we see. It's not totally apparent to us, particularly in the King James translation, but the Greek text is clear that there are two components of fellowship. One of them is the breaking of bread, which Paul calls a fellowship, a participation, in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. They're fellowshipping. How are they doing that? Again, they're playing Uno together. There's nothing wrong with playing Uno together. Let's do it as a a local church. But what they're gathering together, what they share in common, what their fellowship is, is fellowship in Jesus Christ, in his body, his blood that has been shed for them. And the fellowship also includes gathering together for corporate times of prayer. They find commonality, camaraderie, friendship, Unity in all of them going together to the Father's throne. Gathering together before the Father's throne and they devote themselves to prayer, Acts 2 says. And we also find, this is not specified in Acts 2.42, it is specified in Acts 2.45 and 6. But we find it explicit in 1 Corinthians 16.2 that they on the first day of the week came together to give uh, material Uh, provisions for the success of Christ's kingdom, for the care of uh, believers uh, who were in need. 
So is a local church simply a gathering of saints in a specific location? Well, there's one more passage I just want you to look at here. Uh, and then we will stop today. And this is just about done. We have two more minutes we could pass on this. So let's, let's look at one more passage and then we'll stop. Okay. So let's turn to Acts chapter 15 and verse, well, I'll give you the verse in a minute. Acts chapter 15. And the question is, okay, so we have seen that the, universe, that the local church is a gathering of saints. Saw that in 1 Corinthians 14.33. The ga- getting together of saints. If you have saints who get together, is that a local church? Well, look with me at Acts 15, verse 6. This is a significant passage because it talks about gathering together. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Is that a church? Here you've got believers who are gathered together, apostles, no question about their salvation. They're gathered together, they're considering the matter. Is that gathering together, that conclave of the apostles and elders, is that a local church? Is the physical proximity of believers together, is that a local church? And the answer is no. There is more to a local church than simply believers bumping into each other. There's more to a local church than them even sitting together in a room, maybe reading scripture or praying together. What we experience when we come together with other believers, and we had great time of fellowship with with Miriam this week. Uh, Ami and I get together on Thursday mornings, have a great time of fellowship together. We read the scriptures, we pray together. Isn't that what they're doing here in the local church? They're preaching and, in other words, reading the scriptures, and they're praying together. Is, is that the sum total of what a local church is? And the answer to that is the apostles are getting together, they're reading the scripture, and we know they're praying about this matter. But this is not the sum total of a local church. There is more to it. In other words, there's more to a local church than simply a gathering of believers who gather regularly. Um, there's more to what a local church is than that. So let's go back through here. Okay, so I just went through this. Is a gathering of saints in a specific location a local church? There's more to it than simply a gathering of saints. So what is a local church? At, 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 at the base, we've established it is a gathering of saints regularly. We've gotten that far at least. And I hope that's clear. Um, I'm going to pray, and then uh, I'm sure that there are things that are not clear uh, or questions that that raises, and we'll take two or three minutes, and then we will be dismissed, okay? Lord God... We have spent time in the scripture now and we have not been solely focused upon our own upbuilding from your word. And yet, Lord, these things are critical because it is the body of Christ under the leadership of pastors who teach. It is in that context, the local church, that the body causes the growth of the body. And so getting this matter right of what a local church is and what it does is critical for our spiritual growth. And Lord, we have attempted this morning to be faithful students of your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant us grace uh, to look into the scriptures in the next few weeks as we continue to understand the glory of what you have developed in the local church. 
Lord, I pray that you would grant us faith in Christ, not in any man. I pray that you would establish our trust upon his word, what the New Testament says, what Jesus Christ has said to us through his apostles. And I pray, Lord, that you would preserve us from importing our own ideas, especially me, Lord, of teaching. And we ask that what we see would be compelling and that you would give us the joy of gathering together as believers into a local church and experiencing the blessing that you intend for your people in the church. And we pray these things in Christ's name.